I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all. Just the two of us, we can make it if we try. Just the two of us. Oh my God, stop massacring the song and roll the credits already. Welcome to Political Playlist. <laughs> All right, are we ready, guys? Happy hour. Happy, Happy hour. hour. <laughs> oh my God. Welcome to Political Playlist Happy Hour. I'm Michael Kristoff. I'm Anna Muskie Goldwyn. And that massacre you just heard was my rendition of Bill Withers, Just the Two of Us. In other words, saying it is just Anna and I today. Anthony is who the hell knows where. Let's just make it clear that you're not you're not going to Broadway anytime soon. It well, you know, we'll auto-tune it, man. We'll we'll throw there. Yeah. (laughs) What are you drinking? Well, apparently I need a few more uh, tequilas. I have uh, a new tequila I've uh, had before but forgot about. It's called La Gratana. Ooh, sounds fancy. Yeah. I'm drinking a glass of white wine. That's all that I keep in my house. Although you'd be proud. Last night uh, we made spicy margaritas at home. Whoa. Because, you know, I have... forage from your uh, kombucha Yeah, actually, because I have... Mm -hmm. So... Not only do I have the big orange tree in the front, which like if anyone listening to this lives on the west side of Los Angeles and wants some oranges, I have so many oranges. Um, But I also have a lime, very small lime tree growing in the backyard. I feel like I always forget this. Well, lime tree has not been so fruitful, but there was one lime. (laughs) See what you did there. And so I saw the lime and we were making tacos and I was like, I'm going to use this one lime as garnish in a spicy margarita the other lime juice came from a bottle but um i feel like the last thing like maybe last meeting we had over your house you made margaritas yeah yeah well it's because i like using the fresh the fresh squeezed orange juice from my tree is really good it's like very sweet and so then you don't have to put a ton of liqueur or anything like that in the, so, the margarita. So it's what like you're a saying skinny is you, margarita, but better. And you also make it very weak. It sounds like. I don't know, Michael. <laughs> what do you use? Like half a shot of tequila? Or no, what, I did one and a half in each. Oh, oh, well, all right. Yeah, it's not nothing. I'm a rager. <laughs> well, speaking of raging, uh, we want to get to some raging current events here, just to sort yeah. of kick this off. Um, I think the. The big thing, whenever we talk about global events uh, happening all over the world, I think it's important that we sort of link it back to what our mission at Political Playlist is. Obviously, we cover young politicians in Congress on both sides of the aisle under the age of 45. And I think we're always very drawn to looking at the millennial younger perspective when we cover these these global events. And I think the thing that has really caught our eye in the last two weeks are the protests going on in Iran. Um, you've been following these, haven't you? Yes, of course. It's hard, kind of hard not them. to. Hard right? not to follow. I will admit when I first heard about it, I it almost was like confusing. And then yeah. I dug in and looked at it more and it's like, this is a culmination of stuff that we as America or a lot of us as Americans have been kind of oblivious that has been happening in Iran. And this was sort of like, you know, the flame, the, what's the the match? This was the match. Well, so let me, let me set the stage for what that 
match strike actually was. So basically about two weeks ago, there was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who was arrested. Her name is Masa Amini. And she was arrested by the morality police, which you know, is the force that goes around Iran enforcing the various Islamic codes and whatnot. One of which- Specifically to women. To women. And she was arrested uh, because she was in violation of the hijab law. And so there's a lot of uh, differing uh, facts as to whether or not she was actually in violation, what have you. But suffice it to say, she was taken to a re-education center where she then died three days later. So it's unclear exactly what that cause of death was. There was obviously um, some foul play among the guards at this uh, center. Um, And so it, it tragic, of course, but what it has ignited across the country is what is now the second week of protests, the largest protests in Iran since 2009. It's stretched over about 80 cities right now. And effectively what they want is is very simple, which is they no longer, these people who are protesting, a lot of them young folks, uh, no longer want to be under the Islamic Republic's rule. Um, it's pretty it's pretty stunning and and really kind of inspiring to see like a passion to stuff that I think in a way we can only just sort of begin to understand from a very far. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard some really interesting things about it now, listening to some interviews and whatnot. One of which is that dozens of people now have been killed um, in these protests. A lot of them, young women, women as young as teenagers, Um, that, you know, also leads to the fact that this is one of the first times that women are really leading the protests and are outnumbering Mm -hmm. men in these political protests against the regime. And, you know, one thing that I was listening to that was interesting is that a lot of this is not even like they want their own politicians or like the political system is kind of rigged against what they want. It was saying that, these people have elected so-called progressive politicians, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say. And then once they get into office, either because they're not able to, or because they sort of ran under false pretenses, the politicians that they thought were going to do something don't. And so what, like you said, what they're calling for is literally an entirely new system. Um, And, you know, when you say sort of like, it's hard for us to comprehend, I think the piece that's hard to comprehend is how um, sort of antiquated this feels because it feels so much about, I mean, just the idea of a morality police seems like something out of the handmaid's tale, right? Like Uh, very much so. But I think that now you see this conversation happening here, especially amongst, you know, more liberal progressive women saying, well, there is this connection between what's happening there and what's happening with reproductive rights here. And I, you know, I will leave people up to decide how, you know, connected they think those two issues are. But I think that what we're seeing around the globe, at least from my perspective as a young woman, is sort of like this new wave of women's rights that has been there, but kind of dormantly working in like a grassroots nonprofit organization kind of way, suddenly becoming you know, within the last six months, I would say 
an overflow of, you know, public pressure, an overflow of sometimes violence, an overflow of rage. And mm-hmm. it'll just be interesting to see how that manifests across the globe, but obviously specifically in Iran. And this also just incredibly sad that these young women have to die for something that feels to us like such an obvious right to just choose how you want to present yourself. Well, I mean, it's funny. You're saying like all all of a sudden now I'm kind of backpedaling on what I said in terms of like, oh, we can't really relate because just the the way you're even, the words you're even using are like, they don't have a choice as to how they dress, right? It's sort of, and that seems so draconian. And, right. and yet, you know, I think regardless of where you fall on the issue of abortion, that the same logic kind of applies in that in this case, it, to a different degree, albeit, but nevertheless, you have a government now mandating what you can't do. Right. Right. And, when it's and, all rooted in religion. Right. But it's, it's rooted in religion. You know, I think there's right. to right. us or I guess to a lot of Americans, especially pro-life Americans, there's way more kind of nuance within the abortion debate than we view nuance in the hijab debate. But I think that relatively, you know, if you're a a very pro, you know, sort of the typical Islamic laws man Mm -hmm. in Iran, maybe it's kind of the same sentiment. Um, we should also note that these protests have been met with uh, an insane amount of violence by yeah. various security forces, including uh, opening fire on crowds, tear gassing. I think you said dozens of people have been killed. I think the the current number is somewhere north of thirty five. I think as of yeah. a couple of and it was like days under ago, fifty, was, but more yeah. than like ten. Um, yeah. Which I mean, you know, we think of like okay, well you know, as, as crazy and as bad as the January 6th events were, and even further going back to the BLM protests, Mm -hmm. you know, not that many people died in in those. In fact, I think the number's way lower than, you know, what you're seeing here in just two weeks time. So, well, there's a reason that we're allowed to have nuclear weapons in Iran. So, well, right. And I think what's so interesting and not to kind of you know, get too stuck on this point. But, you know, I think so much of what we're seeing there and and a lot of the political rhetoric from the domestic side of things on, on our end stems from this idea that like, you know, we have let Iran go unchecked in many regards. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, further evidence that the, tearing up of the Iran nuclear deal without a immediate replacement was not a great idea because now all of a sudden as, as the United States is often looked at as the, you know, human rights police. And we have to now set an example on that. I think you have a lot of criticism with people saying, okay, well, are you going to police Iran in that regard? And how mm-hmm. is that going to affect trying yeah. to get them back into a nuclear deal? And And I think that you know, it's only further complicating the politics of it all. Well, and a lot of that comes, a lot of what's happening now also comes out of the economic instability that Iran is in because now they're under sanctions and put on them by Trump in replacement of the nuclear deal. And obviously there's foreign policy complexities to how effective the nuclear deal was. But like, you know, when people are struggling economically, anything else has more weight 
And so I think that's definitely a contributing factor. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention too, just from a kind of insider news standpoint, um, we had uh, storied about this on our Instagram this week about Kirsten Cinema. And I thought it was really worth mentioning again, just sort of what she did. She went, she gave a speech um, and she was uh, basically- in, with yeah. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah, good, good details. And so she basically said she wants to return to the 60-vote threshold for all judicial and executive branch yeah. confirmations, nominees. And, you know, this is sort of so interesting. And to to that, McConnell responded, um, literally, quote, he was like, uh, there has never been a more effective first term senator in my entire time in the Senate. And, you know, obviously that's high praise from a guy like Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And who, also he didn't say first term Democrat. He said first term no, first senator. Term senator yeah. Right. So it's like, it's so much, my first thought is, okay, well, McConnell never praises somebody unless he has an angle here. Yeah. Right. So, well, I think that angle? he thinks that she's effective yeah. because she's stalled the Democrats agenda, right. which ultimately right. is in McConnell's favor. Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was really interesting. I think that my reaction to it is maybe not quite as strong as some more far left people, mm-hmm. but I feel like her idealism is great. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, it would be nice if we could get 60 people to agree on cabinet appointments and federal judges and whatnot. But at the same time, like the, we need to get people in those positions and right there's idealism and then there's reality. And I feel like, you know, she's saying this, it's kind of, yeah, like, okay, if we lived in a perfect world where we could find these people that like had whatever record both Republicans and Democrats would be looking for, great, but that's just not where we're at. And I don't know. So I, right. in the college course, like poli sci 460, you know, this works. Yeah. Right. But what's the actual efficacy of it? Yeah. And so to me, it's kind of like, you know, I think it's also one of the only times you, I mean, she rarely gives interviews or like, right. It's just so interesting to hear her speak. (laughs) Yeah. She's kooky. She's behind the scenes. Um, And so I do feel like, I don't know if this is, sort of a play for something larger. Mm-hmm. Um, my instinct is it probably has something to do with the fact that Ruben Gallego is probably going to primary her and mm-hmm. she's trying to court Arizona Republicans oh, to vote for her. I didn't even um, think of that. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. I don't know. Yeah. We can talk about that another time. Well, it, it, see, you thought you went to that and I went to the idea that Remember we did that episode way back where we talked about is the real power in the middle? Right. Right. And it it sort of made me think of how we've seen how instrumental sh- her vote has been in so many legislative items that the Democrats have tried to yeah. pass. And, and Joe Manchin being also similar. And just how by doing that, she's almost reclaiming even more power uh, among the you know, both sides saying maybe, but again, it's kind of like an, it's kind of idealistic, right? right? It's not going to happen. And so it's sort of like, well, how is that actually going to serve her? Because spoiler alert, like she's up for reelection. So it's not all. So nobody does anything that doesn't serve. Okay. But speaking of the middle, can (laughs) I read my first tweet? Ooh, yes. Yes. Um, Okay. It's kind of a, it's going to take a second to get back to, to the, the moderate 
thing yeah. we were just talking and it, about. It's going to take there. me a second to guess who it is. So yeah. Take okay. your time. So here we go. The child tax credit slashed child poverty by 40% and cut food insecurity by 26%. We must take bold, swift action to reinstate the child tax credit and cut poverty in the South Bronx and across the country. Mm. There's a giveaway there. That gives it away. Yeah. But you you please guess who it is. Mm -hmm. Although it's actually, you might guess. There's two people you might guess. I know. I'm totally guessing the wrong. I was going to say Richie Torres. Because isn't he South Bronx? Yeah, that's who it is. Oh, yeah. Okay, I thought you cool. were going to say AOC. No, no. Come on. She's Queens, baby. Okay. Queens. So, right? yeah. yeah so queen. just a quick yeah. a quick rundown. Because this Anna, is actually... Do, you, do we need like a Burroughs lesson for you? Maybe. Well, I'm sorry. I did like... <laughs> you you New Englanders. You okay, don't you know, know the city. You she's don't know Manhattan, I'm sorry. She's really. from the Bronx. Yeah. My bad. Okay. So <laughs> right, talk just to me a about quick, Richie. so just a quick rundown though. So Richie Torres has been one of the biggest proponents of the child tax credit. Mm-hmm. Partially, you know, we talk about how people's narratives, their backstories play into that, their work as politicians. Richie grew up in the housing projects. He w- came from a single parent family. He lived below the poverty line. So the child tax credit is like other tax credits, a wage subsidy for low-income families, which in its current iteration provides up to $300 per month per child for six months. Now, there's a new report that just came out that child poverty has been slashed in half over the last 20 years, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. Um, And so what Richie is saying is that the child tax credit, which was sort of temporarily extended under the Biden administration in response to COVID needs to be codified as a permanent extension and a permanent offering to low-income families. The catch here is that obviously Republicans don't want to spend that money. They think it's going to contribute to the debt. And so there's just this interesting back and forth of like, there now is the data showing that the tax credit has been effective in reducing child poverty. But I think on the other side, it's like, okay, but how does that actually weigh against the sort of general well-being of our economy and all all people of all classes in our country who might be struggling? Well, I think the data also suggests uh, that it's been widely popular too. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like this goes back to some of the, you know, failings of the Democrats' big, huge, sweeping, you know, build back better legislation yeah. where they tried to do so many things all at once. And I feel like this child tax credit, as well as some of the other very popular issues like paid family leave, you know, could have been parsed out and tied to some of these other, you know, more targeted pieces of legislation that I think we've now in recent months seen pass with resounding, you know, support. And so I feel like, you know, Richie's probably right in that this is only helping contribute to closing that gap of child poverty, which I think, by the way, one in five children in New York Mm -hmm. uh, were meal insecure Mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic because of the huge reliance, overwhelming reliance on school food, Mm -hmm. uh, school lunches. So, you know, clearly the data is showing this to be effective. And I think the legislative task, if they want to do it, is to, you know, go with what's popular. 
Right. You so know? about that. Yeah. So about that though, it's interesting because this is very popular and obviously it's helping a ton of people. Mm-hmm. And historically, since the Clinton administration, these public subsidy programs have been very effective in reducing poverty. So mm-hmm. one specific um, stat that I wanted to give to bring us back to this Ooh. moderate discussion. Yeah, because Richie's not moderate. Sure. So there was one, <laughs> and this isn't that. someone that we cover, but it's relevant to what you're just saying about cinema. Okay. There's one state that had the largest drop in child poverty. Can you guess what state that was? Ooh. I want to say that it was like a real Republican state. Sort of. Maybe not. Okay. Um, God, I don't know. Uh, I don't even, I'm going to have a terrible guess. Michigan. No. So it was West Virginia (laughs) fell by 75% reduction in child poverty since the nineties represented by Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin was the block to getting this permanent extension of the child tax credit included in Biden's sweeping agenda during and after during and towards the end of COVID. So what now is happening is there's this, like like you were just saying, this hmm. legislative game of how do we get this very popular and very effective policy implemented? Because especially if they can't get it implemented by the end of the year, Democrats are going to need to have sort of a Republican version of this that they will be able to contribute to if one or both of the chambers of Congress switch to Republican. So the hmm. person who is spearheading the Republican version of this is Mitt Romney. The difference between what Richie wants and what Mitt Romney wants dates all the way back to what Republicans wanted in the 90s, which is that when Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton ran on reducing welfare as people knew it. He wanted to change the welfare system and he did. But what Republicans really pressured him to do was install work requirements into the welfare system which can be debated how that actually helped people or didn't, but it was specifically to address single parent homes that these people needed money, but they also needed to be contributing back to the economy. So Mitt Romney's version of this, to get the child tax credit, you have to have a worker. There's a work requirement. You either have to be seeking employment or be employed. What it does not have is exceptions for caregivers who are disabled, elderly, or in school. Mm. which is, again, a caveat where Democrats probably don't want to budge. So there's a mansion. And Rich, you're saying Richie Torres wants it to include all those things. So he wants it to not just include those exceptions. He wants it to include people who are not working, people who are perpetually unemployed, people who are simply just trying to take care of their children and therefore cannot work. Um, no, Basically, there is no work requirement in the dream sort of progressive Democrat agenda of this. Joe Manchin wants the work requirement. So there's just like this, this, I don't know, this game happening. We can edit in a a clip from Anthony from a previous episode where he talks about the locking them in a room with pizza. Yeah. That's what they're going to have. And that's (laughs) what they want to do because (laughs) the last fact that I'll give you, and I feel like I've been Mm -hmm. throwing a lot of information, but I just find this so interesting is that at the end of this year, there's a negotiation happening over business corporate taxes because there's basically an end to the current, um, uh, the current period of how long our corporate tax system and rules right now are lasting. So -hmm. when they go into these negotiations, what on the Senate side, what a bunch of these senators want to do, democratic senators 
is they want to basically, and Richie's actually part of these statements, although it would begin in the Senate, is that that they want to basically like hold that conversation hostage until the child tax credit conversation gets sorted out. Their argument, which I think would be a, you know, maybe a popular argument. I don't know. I guess it depends what your situation is as a voter, but they're basically saying, how can we be negotiating taxes for corporations when we're leaving um, sort of these incentives and monetary help for children in poverty undiscussed. And so there's, that's the goal of Democrats now is by the end of this calendar year to use that negotiation to try to come up with an agreement. So we'll see. Well, I'll, I'll just final add to that. Anecdotally speaking, um, somebody I know who, you know, goes on a number of different sides of the political spectrum on various issues when it comes to taxes and guns and whatnot. But um, this person has a view that there is no, you know, like when they hear about, you know, X amount of billions of dollars of foreign aid sent to XYZ country, they're like, why aren't we putting that money into our children here? Mm -hmm. Because so many, you know, are, you know, go hungry, live in poverty, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And so I feel like this, there's probably a way, and I hope that there's a way that this can be kind of a, at least a a small unifying issue among Republicans, Democrats, because I feel like you can, you can get a consensus that like, Hey, we have to spend money on Mm -hmm. our children in this Mm -hmm. country. Yeah. Well, Rich, you will be a part of that conversation for sure. So we'll see. TBD. Um, Wow. All right. I have a tweet for you. Okay. We're going to change the topic to energy. Enlightening. The crowning achievement of President Biden's energy policy will not be the transition he desires. It will be an increased dependence on foreign adversaries and high costs for consumers. Oh, that's so general. (laughs) It's a Republican. Um, oh, interesting. Wait. Yeah. Mom. Biden's legacy will be <laughs> high cost for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I don't know. There's like so many people that it that it could be. Is it um, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota? You're not. You're not. F- Far. Is it Dusty well, Johnson? Geog- geographically, you're far, but like oh. you're, you, you, yeah. Well, I should, can I, I'll give you a hint. Yeah. We say this name all the time. <laughs> Is it August Fluger? August Fluger! <laughs> you yeah. Because Anthony's not here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's going to be so Well, sad. and obviously Anthony has some energy thoughts um, yeah. that he could lend in. He has energy time. thoughts, but, but low energy. <laughs> Low energy. <laughs> wow. Um, definitely. Don't we've all seen, we've all seen Anthony party. He does not have low energy. <laughs> um, so what I thought was so interesting about this, he basically tweeted this and linked it to an op-ed he wrote in the Washington post. Mm. Interesting the choice of, the, of publication. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. Very interesting. And so also, can I, we just say August Fluger from Texas, very 
oil rich district that well, he lives in. We're going to say you're you're ruining my data. Well, I just here. want people to know who well, he is. But we're, we're going to get to that. Uh, he yes, you're right that he represents the Permian Basin, which I didn't know this. Get this, ready? The Permian Basin represents. 40% of our crude oil in the U.S. Whoa. From domestic production. Huge. It's the largest. And and so let me, let me back up here and say that he wrote this op-ed. And the crux, of, the crux of his argument is that he's saying that if you attack the oil production in the U.S. and or hamper them in favor of this green, eco-friendly transition to renewable energy, Mm -hmm. you're only increasing our dependence on foreign oil, i.e. Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So he's ultimately saying that like the Democrats' shift in renewable energy is only going to increase the, the cost on families. So let me give you a quote here. He's saying regarding the Inflation Reduction Act, right? It seems the president's immediate solution is to subsidize projects that are years from coming online rather than providing affordable and abundant energy to consumers today. So I think what's interesting about this whole op-ed, and I want to get into some more data into it, but let's start by saying that he isn't actually refuting climate change or the need yeah. to transition. Right. It seems like what he's the case he's making is that we're not doing enough for energy now and particularly oil and gas production now to strengthen us in that department. Right. And I guess the you know the question that I have because I I understand what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm. Like I get I get the sentiment that we are reliant on oil and gas for the foreseeable future. Like even, you know, we live in California, even this mandate that they have now by 2035, like that's still 13 years away when they're right. going to have to sell only electric vehicles. So it's like if that's the most progressive thing out there is 2035. I completely understand where people are coming from when they say, okay, well, what about like those 15 years? And then by the way, the 15 to 20 years after that, that actually would include the rest of the country. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, look, I feel like what is good about this is what you just said, which is that we're no longer in a discussion about whether or not climate change exists or whether gas is a pollutant you right. know, or a creator of, right. of greenhouse gases. And I think that that's good because in our, you know, relatively short lifetime, like that has changed a lot. Right. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what, what are some of like, do you have sort of objective numbers on, on well, what we're spending on this and like, So what he's arguing in this op-ed is that, you know, the $400 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act that is going to renewable uh, energy and different, you know, projects there. He's saying that that, that there is no equivalent 
that is being invested in helping big oil and gas companies here who he claims, uh, and and again, it's an op-ed, so it's hard yeah. to kind of fact check this yeah. just by reading it. But um, he goes further in saying that like environmentally speaking, the Permian Basin is the cleanest production of crude oil in the world. Um, and he terms it something called secure crude oil supply. Mm-hmm. And so what he's saying is that they are actually leading the way and they're not being helped in the same way that these other, you know, renewable projects, which are so far off, are being right. helped. And what he specifically is then tying this to is, you know, he's making it a, a Republican campaign plea, which is or, or case rather, which is to say that like Republicans, their plan is saying we want to give oil companies definitive answers and definitive policy. Mm-hmm. mandates so that they can plan accordingly. I mean, that's Anthony's argument is like right. what we should be doing is is putting sort of more regulations, but then also giving the resources to these right. do- domestic oil producers. Um, yeah, I, I guess I wonder like what kind of what like the pie in the sky outcome is for Republicans if they got this right like if there was mm-hmm. funding for the permian basin more and i assume it's just like more federal funding to build out what it, the refineries that are already there to you know increase job numbers to increase research and development at these companies i assume that's where this funding would go um that i guess the goal he's saying is like then we can make enough oil to not be reliant on foreign oil if we have higher production here? I think the case that he's making is that by all of the increased regulation and hoops that oil companies have to jump through in order to meet what what they would call pie-in-the-sky demands, yeah, he's saying that that hampers these oil companies from being effectively producing you know, enough oil and the the greater the cost that's passed on. This is the kind of age old, you know, conservative capitalism argument, which is the more, the greater the cost passed on to the company, the more that that then gets right. passed on to the right. consumer. So he's drawing the, the line that, okay, by giving a lot of money to these renewable projects and ra- instead of helping the oil producers of the now, yeah, that is driving up the cost for consumers and Republicans want to basically help bring costs down for oil companies right. and therefore bring costs down for consumers. Yeah. I mean, I think that this falls into the category of like probably the most cut and dry example of mm-hmm. liberal versus conservative politics right? where- I think the conservative argument that you just said is let the companies, you know, do things more efficiently and therefore create a better situation for consumers. The liberal argument being if we let companies do things the way they want to do it, they're going to cut corners because they're capital, they're driven by right. These are for profit companies. Yeah. And so I think that it's like what, what you're saying is 
I just feel like the most obvious <laughs> definition of conservatism and liberalism right. in America. And by the way, just on like an more sort of general note, that's the argument that I wish we were having in our country right. instead of all this other bullshit. Like yeah. that's the argument that's like, let's actually have people who understand on both sides, the yeah. way that this issue works, talk about the nuances of like, what is actually going to be better for people. Right. And instead of wasting our time on, you know, these things that are just so incredibly, I mean, not that we're wasting our time, but like, I just get frustrated because when I think of maybe my like <laughs> idealism, like Kirsten Cinema, it's like mm -hmm. politics is there so that we can put people who have experience and have opinions that we either agree with or don't agree with to debate topics right. like this. And we're not debating the topics anymore. We're just pointing right. fingers until we get into power. And, but I feel like I, my takeaway from this that I would offer to, to other people is this is a place where if we weren't so divided along these like weird cultural lines, especially when it comes to the environment, um, that I feel like there could actually be substantial discussion to reach a compromise, but we mm -hmm. just won't. He won't get his wish until there's a Republican Congress and a Republican president. Right. Yeah. No, it's That's probably it. true. Let I think just a, a little, a little quick side note on August Fluger, because we talk about him so much. You know, he's a 20-year Air Force veteran, yeah. um, was a colonel, or I, I think retired as a colonel. And you know, really, his, he's only 43. He's he's obviously a young guy and, um, you know, one of the, you know, handful of veterans that we have on our platform. And I think it's interesting to see. I feel like sometimes the veterans can be the most like practical of our legislators. Or at least they can sound the most practical. They can sound the most practical. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I would yeah. amend that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, there's a hint for my last tweet. Speaking mm. of veterans. Practical? Oh, veteran. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, again, geographically, I think you should get this one. Okay. I just have to mention that I've been having a mosquito issue at my house. <laughs> And we're not supposed to have mosquitoes in California. I, I thought that wasn't they've like arrived. They've yeah. arrived and they're in my yard. And if I leave the door to my office open, which goes out to oh, my yeah. yard, I get mosquitoes in my office. And I just saw one fly by my computer. Yeah. They're and here because of global warming, August <laughs> Fluger. Okay. Well, also speaking of climate yeah. change, this is all really <laughs> playing into my final tweet. This is a big, a, a big climactic we, moment. And honestly, we, we should promise the audience we didn't plan this. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, years of work to improve management of Lake Okeechobee are paying off. Hurricane oh. Ian should not cause high volume discharges to the coasts from Lake O as we have experienced in the past. This is exhibit A for why we fight year round for zero discharges. Um, so Lake o Okeechobee, Orlando area of Florida, which is, um, oh God. Well, it, there's, it's, isn't it Brian Mast and also, um, uh, oh God, uh, the, what's the Democrat? Who's the Democrat there? Man, I'm blanking on our platform now. That's okay. You Do you want me to know this? No. Ellen, or you want to think for a sec? I want to think for a sec. Cause you said veteran. Brian Mass is obviously a veteran. 
Um, I mean, it is Brian Mast. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was yeah. just waiting. Darren Soto is who you're Darren to Soto. Think of. Jesus, why yeah. couldn't I think of that? Oh my God. But Darren Soto is not a not a um a veteran. But right, okay, so right. And I, just was, to, I was my other guest was going to be Stephanie Murphy, but she's kind of I don't think you consider intelligence community veterans. No, and no. she represents a sort of different part of Florida than right. where Lake Okeechobee is. But um, but anyway, so yeah, Brian Mast, um, veteran. Republican, Republican, very represents very Republican represents outside the Orlando, Orlando area. And, you know, obviously we're recording this on September 28th. There is a huge hurricane uh, that Mm -hmm. I think has been up to a category five hitting sort of Southwest Florida, but then moving up towards the Orlando area. And what I just find this all very interesting in terms of like water management, because, you know, in a state like Florida, that's so important. And Brian Mass has been on this like Lake Okeechobee kick for basically Mm -hmm. the entire time he's been in Congress. Lake Okeechobee had all of these infrastructural issues. Basically the, one of the big ones was there was a dam that was not effective. Mm. And there has been a huge project by the army Corps of engineers to rebuild this dam. And now just in time for hurricane Ian, there is a dam that is functional, which means that the surrounding area of Lake Okeechobee, while it still may get flooded by rainwater, is not going to get flooded by discharges from the lake, which would be potentially catastrophic. Hmm. Um, and, and it's so, a big source of fish, right? Big source of like fish, which fishing, also, uh, yeah. yes, but also that's a separate issue, which is there yeah. was a bunch of algae bloom in Lake Okeechobee that they had to get under control because that contaminates the water. Right. So right. that's kind of a separate issue. But the issue right now pertinent to the hurricane is this idea of kind of water management infrastructurally hmm. in Florida which leads to sort of the bigger issue that I wanted to discuss, but couldn't find like a great tweet for it, but I'm going to lead us into it in a second. So there's this issue of water management in Florida. And one of the big projects was Lake Okeechobee, but the bigger project that sort of the Florida government is focused on is in the Everglades and building this reservoir because Florida needs a new reservoir to store and process especially water that they're getting from hurricanes and these kinds of things. So Florida has put up their funds as a state to uh, fund this project. Biden allocated funds in the infrastructure bill, a lot of money towards this project, but that money has not yet arrived. So Hmm. Brian is kind of like on this tear of there's a hurricane. Lake Okeechobee was finally finished, but we're still waiting on this reservoir Biden, where the fuck is our money? Okay. Um, and so it's just this like So he wants the infrastructure money now. Yes. And obviously After he did he not vote for the bill. It. No. Yeah. Right. So um I don't know. I just like I feel like we're I've been seeing all these images of Hurricane Ian, which when you're just watching the news and you don't live there, you're like, oh, I mean, that's horrible. Like it's so right. crazy, all the flooding, blah, blah, blah. Um, but especially in a state like Florida, there's all this preparation that goes into it infrastructurally and yet again it feels like there's politics getting in the way of it i guess you could Mm -hmm. say um and i don't know like i I, it's good that they fixed like okeechobee in time for the hurricane but it seems like there's all these other issues and it seems like the hurricanes are just getting stronger and more unpredictable and I just don't know like when, 
when it's not going to be fixed and there, when there's something that's not right. going to be fixed in time. Right. Well, I guess, you know, important to note that we have no idea what the fallout or damage to yeah. um, Southwest Florida is mm-hmm. going to be, though it pr- presumably it looks to be pretty significant. And I feel like these, some good and some bad can come from these tragic disasters, right? I think you look at New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and so much was rebuilt and rebuilt better. Mm -hmm. And you look at the East Coast, right, where we're from and you think back to Hurricane Sandy and so much was destroyed and then so much was built back better. And And I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) Oh my God, take a shot. Cause that was the worst name for a piece of legislation. (laughs) But I feel like this is just sort of a reminder to folks, uh, just like how critical infrastructure stuff is. Right. And you think about how um, Brian Mast has been so all about taking care of Lake Okeechobee. Right. And this idea of water management, Right. Somebody who lives, you know, not near a giant lake would have no real need to know the term water management. Same thing goes for like forest management, right? Right. And we in California deal with massive forest fires. Right. Well, somebody in Chicago would be like, forest fire? Like what's forest management? Why are you putting money to this? But the reality is that it all comes back to our infrastructure as this incredibly diverse, incredibly vast country that – you know, we the I think the reason that we pay taxes as citizens is to to ultimately make sure that we're protected on all these fronts that we take for granted on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Water management, forest management, management, you, you know, the list goes on, right? And so I think that sometimes these catastrophic hurricanes are a good reminder of like, oh yeah. We do kind of need government for yeah. these things. And by the way, state government is not enough, right? Like right. they right. said, Florida has the funds ready, but it's not enough. Yeah, I mean, right. I think and that- FEMA, By the way, FEMA comes right down there, you know, and infra, uh, interfaces with the state yeah. uh, agencies. So it's not like they're, you know, waiting on the federal government. Like federal government's right there every step of the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I- I don't know. I obviously I just wanted to talk about Hurricane Ian. Yeah. I think that, like you said, we're not going to the fallout. But I was just reading that they're already saying that the Naples area is going to be uninhabitable for an extended period of time after this, oh. which is kind of wild. Um, uh, that's also for anyone who doesn't know, Naples is a uh, that's essentially the Martha's Vineyard from New York. Of, it's the Martha's Vineyard of Florida. Yeah, if DeSantis didn't send him to Martha's Vineyard, he should have sent him to Naples because <laughs> that shit is pricey. Let me tell you. No. Um, yeah. So I think that my big takeaway from this is similar to you. Every region, every state has its issues. Right. And it's works. We're such a big yeah. country, especially geographically, so vast and diverse that it's impossible for us to understand what other parts of the country go through in terms of weather and disasters mm-hmm. and anything like that. And I think that what this sort of very microcosm of an issue that Brian Mast is very rightly passionate about because it's in his district 
is an example of A, what politicians should be doing, which is advocating for the thing in their area that is the most pressing. But where I take issue a little bit with what he's doing is that he's advocating for it and taking money for it, but not fully looking at the big picture of all the other places that are advocating for what they need, which, you know, I think there is an argument to say perhaps on their conservative side, the infrastructure bill was too expensive, but what, what do we expect to be pulled out if every region has something like this, something that Brian is so gung-ho for? I, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, um, cheers to that, Michael. All right. Enjoy your white wine. Enjoy your tequila. <laughs> Gracias. Gracias.